0: Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, we have some imagery here of the capital city of heaven. I don't know if you realize that or not, that there is a capital city of heaven, but the Bible tells us there is. Uh, We often uh, hear it called the New Jerusalem. In fact, Scripture calls it the New Jerusalem, otherwise called the capital city of heaven. Now, on the night before Jesus' death, the Lord Jesus Christ made this wonderful promise, one of the greatest, uh, for me, one of the most encouraging promises of all of Scripture, And it was given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. It is John 14, verses 1 and 2. Here it is on the screen. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Notice the little phrase there. The Father's house, what is that referring to? The Father's house. The Father's house is referring to the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven. This is what Jesus is referring to here in John 14. And he says this is where God will live with his people forever. It is the present heaven where God dwells with the angels It is where Jesus is at God the Father's right hand. It is the place where Christians go when they die. It is a real place. This wonderful place will be one day descending in the eternal state. And when it comes to the new earth, after God destroys this present earth, God says, I will make a new earth, and when I do, I will bring the new Jerusalem, this capital city of heaven, to the new earth. John's view of heaven's capital includes several things that, that we want to look at this morning. First of all, let's look at the, just the general appearance that John is giving here of the capital city of heaven. Look at verse 9. Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Let's stop there for a moment. This is John's vision that god has given to him of the capital city of heaven as you see we just read the angel appeared calls his attention to this city notice the capital city first of all is described as a bride why do you think god would describe the capital city of heaven as a bride well those of you who have brides this should be pretty obvious what he's trying to do, he's trying to draw its character from, from the occupants of the city. The occupants consist of the bride. You know, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. Right? All those who have put their faith in Christ alone make up the church, which the Bible calls the bride of Christ. So the bride is, is, is a title originally given to the church, But now what it's doing here is it's it's enlarging to encompass all redeemed people from all ages who've ever lived. The city is further defined here as the wife of the Lamb. Why why is it described as the wife of the Lamb? Why would you use that description for a city? Well, I think for one reason, if you look at the context going back to chapter 19, is because the marriage supper of the Lamb has already taken place. All good weddings have marriage feasts, and we see that taking place in chapter 19. So, the the bride has already married the groom. In other words, the church has already married Jesus Christ. That's why it's described as the wife of the Lamb. Then John's incredible vision, we see here began... When the angel carried him away in the spirit, when he received the visions that comprise the book of Revelation, we have here the the elderly apostle, John. He's a prisoner of the Romans on the island of Patmos. You can read that in chapter 1, in case you didn't know that. Chapter 1 tells us that. But it says here he is he's he's a prisoner of the Romans on the island of Patmos and he's carried away he's transported somehow and he has this amazing spiritual journey and he sees what normal human eyes could not see John's visions were not dreams by the way they were spiritual realities these were real events that he was real things that he's seeing Notice the first stop here, as the angel showing John. He, the first thing is the, is, the well, the first stop was a great and high mountain. And so the angel takes him to this great and high mountain. It's a, Of course, you, if you go up on a mountain, you can see long distances, can't you? They're great vantage points. And from this vantage point, the angel showed John the holy city. I don't know exactly what it looks like, and the pictures I'm going to show you today, by the way, will never do the capital city of heaven justice, okay? Never do it justice, but if you're like me, a visual learner, I hope they are helpful to you. But I want you to notice what the Scripture says of where this city comes from. It comes from somewhere, and the Bible says it came down out of heaven from God. So it comes out of, of heaven... From God to the new earth. So obviously that's emphasizing the divine origin of the city. The city's not made with human hands. In fact, Hebrews chapter eleven says it is the city whose architect and builder is God. Well, John fourteen says that Jesus is preparing the rooms of the new of the new Jerusalem for all believers. It should be noted that what is described here is not the creation of heaven. It's just the descent of what already has existed from eternity past. Heaven's always been. And notice it comes to the new earth. Why a new earth? Why does there have to be a new earth? Because the old earth, this earth we now live on, is cursed by sin. Do you realize that? Romans talks about this earth is groaning under the curse of sin; it wants to be renewed and made new. One day, one day God will do that. <clears throat> Notice the most distinguishing characteristic of the capital city. Is that it? It, it says here: it's the throne of the eternal God. And notice, because it is the throne of the eternal God, it has the glory of God in it. Well, that glory is going to reach its fullest expression there. It will be unlimited. It's not going to be confined. A lot of people don't really understand, and I'm not sure, I don't think I fully understand the glory of God. But someone has tried to help me understand what the glory of God means, and this this is one way of looking at it, okay? It is the sum total of his attributes and shows itself as blazing light. So it's the sum total of his attributes. And as a result of that, God just shines forth. And so describing the effect of God's glory radiating from the new Jerusalem, what does John do? John notes that her brilliance was... Well, that's hard to describe frankly, but he he uses something that John was familiar with. He uses this very costly stone, a stone notice he says it's crystal clear like jasper. John uses the word brilliance here. Brilliance refers to something from which light radiates. To John, what imagine John before the days of electricity, okay? Uh John's trying to describe the indescribable, and this was in the day when there was no electricity, there is no light bulbs, but yet John's, it's like he's seeing this giant light bulb that's just blinding. And he tries to describe it as being brilliant. The city appeared to the apostle like one gigantic precious stone. Some have said that jasper does not refer to the modern stone that we we typically have named jasper today, which is actually opaque. But this stone that John was referring to here was something that was translucent. In other words, it was it was transparent. It was something that would allow light to go through it. Some have said that maybe it was like a diamond, something very costly, but yet... Uh, something that didn 't have blemishes, something that would allow light to go through and you, when you put <clears throat> something through a, a, a diamond or a prism, you know, when the light goes through it's isn't it 's beautiful isn 't it and often you can see all the various colors of the rainbow as it comes through it 's a beautiful thing to behold. So what are we seeing here in, in these just these general uh, in the general appearance we have heaven 's capital city is this Huge, flawless diamond. It's refracting the brilliant glory of God. And it's doing it throughout the new heaven and the new earth. A perfect place. A place finally without sin. John goes on in his description. and gives us what the outside of the capital city of heaven looks like. The exterior design, starting in verse 12. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, "...it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. In the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and in the west three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb." And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, with, with its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with, its, with his rod 12,000 stadia, which I'll explain what that is in a moment. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, and the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite the 8th beryl, the ninth topaz, the 10th chrysopras, the 11th jacinth, the 12th amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Let's stop there for a moment because that starts to get into another section we'll look at. So I hope you... you, you you get the, the idea here, the human language is just inadequate to describe heaven. Poor old John's trying his best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do so, but that's that's, that's do look at what this, the Holy Spirit has revealed here to us. Notice first, the city has a great and high wall. What does that indicate? Because typically, you're, you know, we don't have a wall around our city. But in Europe, if you go to Europe, you'll still find cities with walls around them. Why put walls around cities? Why did they do that? Was it to keep people in? No, of course not. It was to keep bad people out. (laughs) It was for protection, right? So why does heaven have a, a wall around it, a great and high wall, the Scripture says? Well, one of the things this is telling us is, that it's this is not something that's just nebulous it's not it's not floating this is a real place okay it has specific dimensions as well in fact it even has limits remember this is the capital city it has limits it can be entered it, you can leave and the way you enter and you leave is through the 12 gates here's a picture of of, uh, you can see the, uh, the the pearls at the bottom on the, the foundation part there. At those 12 gates, the Bible says there were 12 angels that God had stationed. They were there attending to His glory, and, and they were there also to serve His people. The Bible also says the gates had the name of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. These names are going to celebrate for all eternity god's covenant relationship with his people and if you're a believer you'll be able to walk through those gates throughout for all eternity and you'll be reminded of what god has done god chose a insignificant people to accomplish his purposes notice the names were arranged symmetrically it says there were three on each side three on each side there's four sides of course Three on each side gives you 12. Notice also the massive wall of the city's anchored by 12 foundation stones. And on those stones were the names of the 12 apostles written on them. Again, here's a picture with the various stones and the various apostles. These stones commemorate God's covenant relationship with the church. So we're going to be reminded of what, how God has glorified himself through his church throughout eternity as well according to ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 the apostles are the foundation of the church which is why god has put their names commemorating them on the wall of the new jerusalem at the top of each gate was the name of the tribes of israel at the bottom of each gate was the name of one of the apostles Then there was a very curious thing that happens here in our, in our passage. The angel who is, who is speaking to John took a gold measuring rod to measure the city. He measured his gates as well, its walls. And the result is quite interesting. We, we know how big this place is, at least approximately, because of what the Bible tells us here. And I think you should interpret this literally. So how big is this place? Well... It size, it is, first of all, it says that each side is equal. All four sides equally the same. The side is the same as the height. Uh, some Bibles might say furlongs, 12,000 furlongs. ESV says 12,000 stadia, or however you say that word. The walls are approximately 1,360 miles or 2,200 kilometers in today's measurements. And by the way, if you're, if you're having a hard time visioning, how far is 2,200 kilometers? Well, New Zealand is approximately 1,600 kilometers long. So you've got another, what, uh, eight, 800 kilometers. That's just one side of the wall. I like what Henry Morris says. He points out that a cube-shaped, uh, a cube-shaped city is well-suited for the existence of glorified beings and here's what he says quote it should be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces as at present thus it will be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally in the new jerusalem Consequently, the streets of the city may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues, and the blocks could be real cubical blocks instead of square areas between streets as in a present-day earthly city." Quote. I don't know if you thought about that, but you're, if you're a believer, your, your room that Jesus Christ is preparing for you could also be a cube within the bigger cube. So based on certain assumptions, Morris actually calculated that each person's cube would be approximately 75 acres on each side. That's a big room, isn't it? So you say, well, how big is this city? You're having a hard time imagining this? Well, it's, it's actually bigger than the entire country of Australia. Were that city to be superimposed on other places of the world, well, if it's superimposed over the country of Israel, it's far bigger than Israel. In fact, it would go into Africa, take up all the, basically all the Middle East, and uh, even going over into Europe. If it was to be superimposed over the United States, it would go all the way from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. It would take up almost the entire United States. So, there's plenty of space, in case you're wondering. (laughs) It's a big place. Then we also see the scripture says the angel measured the city's wall. The city wall is 144 cubits, which is approximately 70 meters. It's It's a big wall, isn't it? Then John adds the parenthetical note that those dimensions were given according to the human measurements, which are the same as the angelic measurements. The material that the city walls is made out of, notice it's Jasper, which is that same diamond-like stone that's mentioned in verse 11. And so not only was the wall translucent you had to allow light through it, but the, the wall, or the city itself was pure gold, like clear glass. So those of you who might have a gold ring on your finger? like I do, or a gold of some other form, that obviously is not pure gold. It has lots of impurities in it, which is why it's not translucent. Okay. The Bible says that this pure gold is like clear glass. It allows the light of God's glory to pass through it. It has to be able to radiate the glory of God. Then we have the foundation stones of the city wall mentioned here. I've given you a picture here. Uh, I don't know if if this is exactly what God is talking about, but somebody has no, not that one. The other one, somebody has given the the gemstones of the New Jerusalem. In case you don't, you aren't familiar with these particular stones. But remember, Jasper is 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 something like a diamond. Sapphire is a is a brilliant blue stone. Chalcedony is an agate stone from modern Turkey. Kind of like a sky blue with colored stripes. Emerald is a bright green stone. Sardonyx is red and white striped. Sardius is a common quartz stone, uh, found in various shades of red. Chrysolite is transparent gold or a, or a yellow-hued stone. Burl is uh, well, it's found in various colors, including green, yellow and blue. Topaz is a yellowish greenish stone. Chrysopraz is a gold tinted green stone. Jacinth is blue violent violet colored stone. At least it was in John's day. And amethyst, of course, is a purple stone. And when you put all those things together, you've got to, it's it's just beautiful, especially imagining imagine the glory of God's brilliance radiating from that. Shining the brilliance of God's glory. And so the scene must have been one that was truly breathtaking for John, and he, poor old John's trying to describe the undescribable here. The next item of the heavenly city that caught John's eye was the twelve gates. By the way, notice the Bible says they had twelve pearls. Giant, huge pearls. So big, ladies, you'd, you'd never be able to get them on a necklace around your neck. They're way too big. You can see a picture of what it might look like here on the screen so why pearls well of course pearls just as they are today have have been prized highly prized they're considered uh, very valuable just as they were in john's day these pearls were like no other pearls that have ever been produced by an oyster because there is no oyster that is this big (laughs) right there is no oyster that is this big it doesn't exist there is some spiritual truth, I, I think, that is significant in relationship to the pearl. So listen to what uh, John Phillips explains about these pearly gates. Here's what he says on the screen. Quote, How appropriate! All other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster. The only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will forever be reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. Think of the supernatural pearls from which they are made. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl? Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the suffering of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access routes to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home." End quote. God doesn't do things by accident. Those aren't those aren't there just for looks, <laughs> all right? Next let's let's go into the city Let's see what the Bible has to say about the inside. We've seen the the outside of it. Let's look at the internal character, starting here in verse 21. Verse 21. Uh, The last part of verse 21 says, The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We'll stop there. So what does John have to say about The inside. Not a whole lot, does it? Doesn't say a whole lot, does it? But let's let's do focus on what he does mention. So John enters in through one of those pearly gates, and what does he see? Well, he notices streets of gold. Notice it's pure gold, like transparent glass, not like the rubbish gold that we have nowadays. It has lots of impurities in it. So streets were made of the highest quality pure gold. So everything is transparent, again, to let the light of God's glory blaze through it. And once John's inside the city, the first thing that John noted was that there was no temple in it. Of all the things John could have noticed, why mention no temple? Well, there's going to be no need for a temple in the capital city of heaven because it says the Lamb is the temple. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, Scripture says. There's going to be no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship God because God is there. Life will be worship and worship will be life. So we're going to be in God's constant presence. Next, John notes here as well that the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Again, God is illuminating it. You don't need electricity in heaven because God's radiating brilliance of his glory shines throughout everything. Which, of course, is radically different from what we have presently on earth, isn't it? We are dependent on the sun. We're dependent on and when the sun's not shining and the moon is not doing you know re- reflecting the sun's rays then we need other forms so that we can see don't we well, look what this commentator Sice, wrote quote in the next screen there he says that shining is not from any material combustion not from any consumption of fuel that needs to be replaced as one supply Uh, as one supply burns out. For it is the uncreated light of him who is light, dispensed by and through the Lamb as the everlasting lamp to the home and hearts of his glorified saints. When Paul and Silas lay wounded and bound in the inner dungeon of the prison of Philippi, they still had sacred light, which enabled them to beguile the night watches with happy songs. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, A light brighter than the sun at noon shone round him, radiating his whole being with new sights and understanding, and making his soul and body ever afterwards light in the Lord. When Moses came down from the mountain of his communion with God, his face was so luminous that his brethren could not endure to look upon it. He was in such close fellowship with light that he became informed with light and came to the camp as a very lamp of God, Glowing with the glory of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that same light streamed forth from all the body and raiment of the blessed Jesus. And with reverence to the time when this city comes into place, Isaiah says, The moon shall be ashamed and the sun confounded, ashamed because of the outbeaming glory which then shall appear in the new Jerusalem, leaving no more need for them to shine in it, since the glory of god lights it." End quote. Another detail we see in scripture is that the gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. Remember in, in ancient walled cities particularly around John's time some <clears throat> excuse me some 2000 years ago the gates were closed at night. Why? It wasn't to keep people in, it was to keep the people inside the city safe from bad people who were outside the city, right? Keep away invaders or criminals or potentially dangerous people who might want to use the cover of darkness to come in and do their dirty work. So this truth here is depicting the city's complete security. There's no danger. There's no evil. It's a place of total rest Safety and refreshment. Those of you who have your, your homes broken into, know that you, it's, it's a very unsettling feeling when someone invades your personal space, takes your belongings that you've worked hard for. That, that's not a secure feeling. And, you know, and, 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 and when that happens to you, you wonder, okay, when, when's it going to happen to me again? Well, in heaven, you'll never have that problem. Never. Notice in verse 26 that it's in heaven, the glory and honor of the nations are going to be dissolved into the eternal worship of God. Oh, nations are too important nowadays. Especially when it comes time around Olympic time or something like that. Nations... You know, the the patriotism is flowing big time. We talk about nations. We read about nations. We see all the nations on TV. But in heaven, it's not that important. It's just going to be dissolved into the eternal worship of God. And then also in verse 27, we see that everyone in heaven will be perfectly holy because notice it says there that nothing unclean will be there. No one who practices abomination, lying, these various sins are, are going to come into the heavenly city. Not, There's not going to be those kind of people. There will not be sin in heaven. The only one there will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in order to get into the Lamb's Book of Life, you must put your faith in Christ alone. You must recognize that you are a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you stand guilty before a holy God. You stand condemned. You are not innocent. You are guilty. You must pay the fine. And according to Scripture, the penalty for your sin is eternal death. Well, guess what? As you stand guilty before a holy judge, the Bible says Jesus paid your fine. He paid your penalty. So you don't have to. That's the only way you're ever going to get into heaven. And then, as we start here in chapter twenty two, John continues on his tour with his tour guide, the angel. Next, the angel shows him a river of the water of life, and notice where it comes from in in heaven by the way we we've already well if you if you read the previous context, it says there is no sea, there is no rain, not in heaven there's no sea, there's no rain thus the water is not like we know it. The river was clear as crystal, it says. Again, everything needs to reflect the glory of God. Well, there's great imagery in that, isn't there? My friends, if even the inanimate, the immaterial parts of God's creation are there to to declare and to reflect the glory of God, we who are made in the image of God should do it as well. Notice where the water's coming from. It's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's coming from God's throne. And then as we look at verse 2, we see the phrase there, in the middle of the street, in the middle of the path, if you will, In the middle of this path, we have a a tree of life. The tree of life is the heavenly counterpart, by the way, to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. This tree provides for those who are immortal. We don't need to eat in heaven, because we're immortal. Just as Jesus doesn't need to eat, neither do we, but God is so gracious, just think about this, those of you who like to eat, God is so gracious and wonderful and good that He gives us the blessing of enjoying food in heaven with taste buds that are no longer cursed by sin. Just imagine what that will be like. It will be far better than anything you've ever had on earth. Far better. I can't wait. The tree of life, by the way, was a familiar Jewish concept. And, And the concept, the idea was to express blessing to people. And this tree is not your usual tree. Notice scripture says it has how many kinds of 12? Sorry, I just gave the number away. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, emphasizing the infinite variety that's going to fill heaven. And notice the use of the word month. Probably does not refer to time, since we're talking about an eternal state here, and and time is no longer going to exist but but again john poor old johns trying to describe the indescribable has to use human language to do that and then we see john he makes the intriguing observation that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations now that's interesting remember we're talking about a perfect holy place no more sickness no more disease no more sorrow suffering any death all that stuff is gone and so at first glance here, it seems confusing, since there's none of those bad things anymore. The curse of sin is gone. So what's this talking about? Well, that, that word there, healing, is the Greek word therapia. Sound familiar? Therapia. Uh, from that particular word, we get other English words like therapy, therapeutic, right? <laughs> Uh, And from those English words, you kind of get the idea of what this Greek word means. So it does not imply illness. Uh, The idea here is it's life-giving, it's health-giving, or in other words, it's therapeutic. Right? you go for uh, something you would call therapeutic, It's, it's something that makes you feel better, it's aromatic, it's something that's oh i don 't know you whatever therapeutic comes to your mind that it's probably probably the right idea okay life giving health giving so the leaves of the tree can be likened to uh, supernatural vitamins <laughs> right that uh, promotes general health well let 's let 's move on let 's finish this passage by looking at verses three to five and here we see the privileges of the inhabitants of the capital city of heaven. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, there's some wonderful privileges here for God's saints. So as John is continuing his tour with his angel guide, he notices that life was very different here for the inhabitants of this city. The most dramatic change from the present that we, we have here on earth is, is the first one. Notice, there will no longer be any curse. No longer any curse. The removal of the curse will mean all sorts of things. It means the end of sorrow. It means the end of pain and suffering and death. And to me, the, the, the most important one there is the end of death. Because the penalty of sin is death. So when sin is dealt with and gone and everything is now holy, there is no more death. We've seen already there was no temple in the city, but notice Scripture says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. God the Father and Jesus Christ are now reigning throughout all of eternity. So we see that God is sovereign. He's the sovereign ruler over His universe. That's the point of that. And we also see that His servants shall serve Him. By the way, they're only going to serve Him. They're going to spend eternity, all eternity, doing what? Not being bored. Eternity is not a boring place. It says that we will serve Him. And so, for all eternity, we will be doing the various tasks that God gives to believers. And it won't be boring, okay? Just think of who God is, the limitless mind of God, and all the various things that he can come up with for you to do. And you just meditate on that one for a while, and then, and then you've got to go beyond that, because you're, you're never going to get everything that God's thinking of. In verse 4, it says that the saints in heaven will see God's face. Do you want to see God's face? Now we don't. We don't want to right now. At least I hope you don't, because you realize the most, the most fearful, frightening event would for, would for, for a sinner to see God's face. There would be nothing worse than that. So God has to deal with our sin, change our very nature, so that we can, we can actually look in His face and not be consumed... We're going to be made perfectly holy and righteous so we, we're able to endure God's face. We can we can be in God's presence and actually enjoy His presence. The redeemed will also be God's personal possession, verse 4 says. Because it says that His name will be on their foreheads. Do you see that there in verse 4? God will mark his name on your forehead. That's an, it's an identification. It's going to leave no doubt to whom you actually belong to, and it will be there for all eternity, forever and ever. Sometimes we mark our names on stuff, don't we? I got my names in my books. You know, this, this, this book belongs to me, whoever me is. You know, sometimes we write our names on our toys, But those things aren't for eternity. God says, I am putting my identification mark on you. You are mine. Then in verse 5, John repeats the earlier description of heaven's magnificence. You can see a picture here on the screen. The Bible says in verse 5, there shall be no night there. No need for candles. Why? Because God gives the light. God's glory is shining We've seen this over and over again. God obviously wants us to to, this to be repeated so we grasp a hold of this truth. And then it finishes. We see that there is fulfillment here. There is a fulfillment. It's going to be the fulfillment of Christ's promise. In Revelation 3, verse 21, that to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. That's what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Here's the fulfillment of it. You will get to sit with God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's an amazing truth. So we have the eternal capital city of heaven, this new Jerusalem the Bible calls. What is it like? Well, it's a place of indescribable, unimaginable beauty. It, it is the indescribable place, okay? So, so you take it as far as you can go with it and then just realize it's not far enough. Heaven is far better than, than what you can even imagine, We see from the center of heaven the brilliant glory of God is shining forth even through the gold and the precious stones. And the most glorious reality of all will be that we who are sinful rebels against God, who have broken all of His laws and stand condemned and guilty and deserve eternal punishment in the lake of fire, will one day enjoy uh, intimate fellowship with Him. One of the authors in my library once made this very interesting question. As I was reading this book, it it just hit me right between the eyes. He asked the question in this book, Would you enjoy heaven if Jesus wasn't there? I hope your answer is no, by the way. I hope you can honestly say, I could never enjoy heaven if Jesus was not there. He is the greatest treasure. And if it wasn't for Him, you wouldn't be there anyway. So, that is the greatest part of all, that sinners who have broken God's laws and who repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ alone can enjoy Jesus Christ's presence as holy, righteous beings. Well, I want to end with just reading to you from the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you know this, this series, and you know that I really enjoy C.S. Lewis. And I, When I was growing up, I read these, and now my children are reading them more than once. And Lewis, who was a Christian, understood the glory of heaven. And you see the analogy of, of various biblical truths throughout the Chronicles of Narnia... And here at the very last story in the Chronicles of Narnia, called the, the Last Battle, we have the lion who represents Jesus Christ. His name is Aslan. And they've come to the end of the story. And these children throughout the years who have enjoyed these trips to this, this magical world called Narnia, well, they no longer get to enjoy it. Because here's what Aslan Who represents Jesus says to them, He says, There was a real railway accident. He says, Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world... And all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. End quote. And that's how the Chronicles of Narnia end. Lewis understood what we've been reading here in Revelation my friends do you do you understand what you're living right now is just the shadowlands it's just temporary it's just the cover page right it's not the real thing the real things yet to come and is far better but for you my friend for you, for the unbeliever this is as good as it gets for you If you've never put your faith in Christ alone, it doesn't get any better than this, because the next life means the lake of fire for you. Eternal condemnation. Receiving God's wrath for your sin. But for a believer who is trusting in Christ to bear God's wrath, well, that's a different story. This life is as bad as it gets. And we get to enjoy eternity forever and ever with Jesus Christ worshiping him and doing all the various things and duties that he wants us to do so my my friend where is your affection today is your affection your devotion your heart your loyalties your allegiance is it set on things above or is it set on things of this earth where is it my friend this earth is temporary it's not going to last That's why Jesus says we're to lay up our treasures in heaven. Jesus is not against treasure. He's not against treasure. He just wants you to put your treasure in a place that lasts. Are you doing that? Are you living for eternity? Is Jesus in heaven your real home, your real treasure? I hope it is. May God, by God's grace, may that be reality in your life.